Morning. Morning. Told you I'd speak a little bit louder, Caleb. Uh, one thing quickly to clarify, the memorial service for Pat Daniels will be here Saturday morning at 11 a.m. Um, so keep that in mind. So the words we read from our scripture passage this morning, depart from me, I never knew you, are probably the scariest words in the Bible. This message started with me waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning with those words burning on my heart. And I wondered, how did that reconcile with passages like, my burnt offerings and sacrifices you do not want, but it's a broken and contrite contrite heart. And I began to think about the men speaking these words, and they were sure that they had salvation. They cried out, Lord, Lord, but Jesus didn't know them. And I began to wonder, if those men could fool themselves, can we really know that we have salvation? So I started to explore this, and it began with, where did this passage come from? And I realized it's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And I thought to myself, how did Jesus go from blessed are the poor in spirit to depart from me, I never knew you, in one message? And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the full sermon and try to follow Jesus' thinking on how he gets from blessing the poor in spirit to a warning of depart from me, I never knew you. So let's, let's open up with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, first of all, for your word. We thank you for the example of the truth that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. We pray, Lord, that the words spoken here this morning would not be my own, but they would be from you, that our hearts would be open to hear from you, that we would be challenged by your spirit, and these words that Jesus have brought to us would take on a new light in our lives and would send us out of here challenged and drawn closer to you and with a new focus on our position in you that we would leave this place with a fervor burning to know you more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Sermon on the Mount is early in Jesus' ministry. Matthew has it right after he calls his first disciples. Luke also has it almost immediately after he chooses the twelve, but we do see a few miracles that take place in between. But both passages, both Luke and Matthew passages of Sermon on the Mount, seem to have this as Jesus' first public ministry to a large crowd. So we're very early, and both accounts begin with the Beatitude, and they end with the story of the wise man building a house upon the rock. But only the Matthew passage contains this warning that we're looking at. Now as we get started and we look at this, if you've ever taken public speaking class, you know there's a few things that are essential for a good speech. And since Jesus is perfect, we would assume that his sermon would be perfect as well. First, I'm telling you what I'm going to tell you. And then you tell us. And in this, we see a couple of themes, the themes that are broken down in your outline, our perspectives and heavenly truths in 521 through 48, our performance versus our motivation, 6, 1 through 24, and our perception versus reality in verses 
um, chapter 6, verses 25 through 720. And then telling you what I told you as a conclusion, and then with a message, you also have to have an application. So I think we will see all of those here in this passage. And we also see a pattern in the Sermon on the Mount of comparing earthly to heavenly. And it follows through the entire message. So we'll start with his intro. Verses 5, 1 through 20. <clears throat> or chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, excuse me. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, the disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. <clears throat> a city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, <clears throat> Excuse me, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's Jesus' introduction. <clears throat> we'll look at it a little carefully, quickly. But in verses 3 through 5, he's talking about our emotional state versus God's blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. In 6 through 9, Jesus shifts to an internal battle. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. They will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. And then in 10 through 12, he shifts to those who are serving God and the reward that's to come for them. <clears throat> it's the same heavenly versus earthly comparison, but this time he gives us application. Um, blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice and be glad they persecuted the prophets before you. Now, some things to keep in mind here. Jesus is addressing a crowd of common people. 
he's not speaking to the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time. He is speaking to everyday people with no religious training, outsiders, if you will. But he equates them to the Old Testament prophets when he says rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted because they, they persecuted the prophets before you. Prophets brought God's word directly to the people. And now people are hearing God's word from the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. Is Jesus alluding to the elimination of the need for those in a direct interaction with God here? Another thing to note in the Beatitudes, he bookends the Beatitudes with rewards of heaven, both the poor in spirit and the persecuted will receive the kingdom of heaven. And so he begins to build a ministry among the people as opposed to the religious leaders because he tells them you are the salt of the earth. He's not in the temple. He's not talking to the priests. He's speaking to crowds. He warns them against the loss of their saltiness and the waste that comes from it. It's only good to be thrown out. Can't help but wonder if he's implying that there's a possibility for us to lose our saltiness. If you were in Sunday school, we had some significant discussion around that this morning. We see other parallels in this concept, though, in the sheep and goats, in the wheat and tares, and more importantly, the pruning of the vines, cutting out those who are not producing fruit. Without evaluating the heart, we can't know exactly what he means with saltiness, if it's outward appearance or inward attitude. But it is clear that ministry can be tarnished. But perhaps Jesus is referencing here a transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. That those who don't see how the prophecy points to him as Messiah are no longer drawing people to God. The true point here that Jesus is making is we must maintain our faith. We must hold fast to it or we're going to lose our effectiveness in our ministry. And then he tells them you're the light of the world, a city on a hill. Light and elevation both bring prominence. Our eyes are drawn to things that are well lit. When you elevate something, you look up to it, and it can be seen from much farther away, much more easily visible. When we take our lamp, and we put lamps around our house, we don't put them on the floor. We want to put them up high so that they illuminate the entire room. And he's paralleling this elevation that he's providing to his followers so that they, they can show their good works and glory is given to our Father in heaven. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is actually calling people to do works for the purpose of bringing glory to the Father in heaven. It's the first call to action in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's kind of indirect. 
And if you look at verse 16 carefully, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. The light is shining on the good works. These are separate items. The purpose of our light is that people can see the things we do and give glory to God. The light has to be separate from our works. It cannot illuminate itself. So Jesus is going to break down the, pro- the problems with works-based faith, and he starts in 17. He himself hasn't come to abolish the law. He's come to fulfill it. He's not changing what's been taught, but he's changing our perspective on it. Not even the smallest piece of the law is going to pass away before it's accomplished. The commandments aren't to be relaxed. They're not to go unenforced. And if we ignore them and do not teach them, then the best we can hope for is to be called the least in the kingdom. But those who obey them and teach them will be the greatest. A call to be true to Scripture. All of Scripture is sufficient for our teaching. We do not need to add or take away. So Jesus seems to be talking here about willful disobedience of following the law. You know, if you were in this time and in the crowd, you probably would think that the Pharisees have it made. They've got it down. They know the law. They're 100% there. At least that's what they would have told you. They had discipline. They had willpower. They had knowledge of the scripture. But Jesus is going to contradict that attitude by telling us that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So if you're in the crowd, you're probably pretty hurt right now because you've been built up. You've been told you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. The implication is that you'll be bringing the word of God to people. But now you've been challenged to be more righteous than the Pharisees. How hard would that have been? Can you see why many people say that this teaching is too hard to understand? But it's okay. Jesus begins to explain it as he gets into his application and his story. So we're going to look at 521 through 48, and we're going to see the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to hell to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. <clears throat> come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to, with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the, and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. We'll take these a piece at a time here. You see, discipline doesn't make us pure of heart. Jesus is contrasting action with our attitude or our head knowledge of the law versus our heart attitude or our motives. 
You can act out the law, but if your heart contradicts your action, you're in the wrong in God's eyes. It's just like the little kid. I may be standing on the outside, but I'm sitting on the inside. We cannot have that attitude towards Scripture. So Jesus tells us, Scripture tells us don't murder, but if you're angry with someone, it's the equivalent of murder. Even an insult is going to bring judgment. Calling them names brings hellfire. And these things have consequences for our worship. If we realize as we're coming to the altar that we have these things in our lives, we're to stop, go back, reconcile, get it right so that we can worship freely and truly. And then when we're accused, we're to acknowledge our wrongdoing. We are to have the proper heart attitude. Yes, I'm in the wrong and I will make it right. Pay the penalty fully. Do not try to negotiate. In 27:30, he goes from a public action to from 27 through 30, he goes from a public action to our private thoughts. You have heard it heard that it was said, "You shall not commit adultery." But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Looking with lust is all it takes to sin. It is our attitude, not our action. Jesus tells us to eliminate the cause. Our emotions can't be controlled. We all have a sin nature, but our circumstances can be controlled. So if it's that look, find a way to blind yourself. Don't give yourself the opportunity. If it's doing something that makes you tempted, then take away that tool that's going to cause you to stumble. Jesus is essentially telling us that if we can't keep our attitude in the right perspective, do not give it an opportunity to be wrong. Jesus even blames us for the failure to maintain the proper attitude about marriage. He says divorce for adultery is acceptable to God. The only way that someone could be free If you're divorced for any other reason, you have caused someone else to sin. You've caused her to commit adultery. Our attitude impacts others in their walk. Now let me take a moment to say, for those of you who are divorced, God's grace provides forgiveness for all sins. Whether they be public sins or private sins, we can't change our past, whatever it may be. And I will tell you, Satan will attack you in that realm. But whatever sin is in our past, it's part of God's sovereign plan. He will use it to bring him glory, and he is not unable to forgive it and move past it. And in verses 33 through 37, we look at our promises. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, 
but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So while the law would tell us to not lie, Jesus tells us simply do what you say. It reinforces the attitude that our actions supersede our words. If we do what we say every time, we don't have to swear an oath because people know that our yes is our yes and our no is our no. And if we're not known for doing what we say, then saying, I swear by, doesn't give our words any more credence. It just means we've added things to it. They carry no more weight because we can't be depended on to carry them out. And what about retaliation? Again, looking at our behaviors versus our attitudes. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. See, the law says, according to Jesus, we're entitled to equal repayment. But he tells us to allow their evil to show itself. Don't resist. Don't fight back. Turn the other cheek. Let the one who's attacking you show themselves for who they truly are. We are to repay evil with kindness. Give them your coat, too. Again, attitude over action. Who that is going to get robbed is going to say, well, here, take my wallet. Here's the credit cards. By the way, the PIN number is. That's not our human nature. Somebody says, hey, you, you've got to carry this for me a mile. Our natural response is not, well, I need some exercise. Why don't we go too? That's not the way we, we behave as individual human beings, but when we're Empowered by the Spirit, we will do that. See, it takes strength of character to not react emotionally when things happen to us. The ability to overcome our human nature cannot come from ourselves. We don't have that ability. It has to come from the Spirit. Maybe this is part of the light that Jesus is referring to that is going to shine on our work so that God will be glorified. People will see these behaviors and say, how can they do that? And we can say through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus gets a little more specific in 43 through 48 as he's talking about our attitudes. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
So love our neighbor. No, love your enemies as well. This makes you children of your father. Loving your enemies can't come from within. It has to come from the power that God has given us. So Jesus is beginning to get to the heart of this message. But this concept is not new. The Old Testament teaches us that God doesn't want our burnt offerings and sacrifices. He wants a broken and contrite heart. 51, Psalm 51.16, which is your reflection verse for today. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. You see, Jesus has set the example. For us as humans, everybody repays good with good. If you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. But only a heart with a proper attitude can take care or can care for everyone equally regardless of the way they're treating us. It's summed up in a simple line. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, Jesus, after all, saw our need and came down and lived and is preaching this sermon so that we can be rectified. Even though we've hurt him, we've cursed him, we've beaten him, we've abused him. Not all of that at this point in his ministry, but it is true. But now the command, if you thought it was bad before when we were told to have a faith that exceeded the scribes and the Pharisees, now Jesus tells us, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The task is getting more difficult, not easier. It seems almost impossible to accomplish, but it isn't. And Jesus is going to begin to address how we are molded to be like the Heavenly Father in chapter 6. So in 6, 1 through 24, Jesus began to shift from the idea of our actions reflecting our faith to one of our faith producing action in us. You see, our outward faith, our outward actions are not always a reflection of our inward attitudes. It is far easier to go through the motions and look like a good Christian than it is to actually be a good Christian and a faithful follower of Christ. So we have to have compassion for others. Jesus begins the setup for the real teaching here. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. You're going to see this theme throughout this passage. And Jesus is hinting at the point he's going to make here when he says you have received your reward. So he tells us when you give to the needy, keep it quiet. And our prayer life is impacted by this too, and we see this in 5 through 8. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Powerful word there. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in 
and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I'm sorry. <clears throat> yep, I'm correct. Truly, I say to you that they've received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty praises, empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So prayer is not a public display. And if you make it a public display, then the attention you're receiving is the reward you're going to get. The motive for a public prayer is you want to look good. Jesus again alludes to the point of the sermon. If you're praying in public for attention, the attention is all the reward you're going to get. See, we're called to pray in private. It's a selfless attitude. We have nothing earthly to gain from it. It's a desire to spend time with God, to speak to him and hear from him. We don't need to use a bunch of words. It's not an intellectual pursuit by using words without meaning. Our motives for our prayer is far more important to God than the words we're actually praying. Our prayer doesn't need to be poetic or eloquent. It needs to be genuine. And even if we don't know what to say, Jesus tells us that the Father already knows the need. He is looking at our heart before we hit our knees. The instruction on prayer sums up how we are to pray. And we're all familiar with the Lord's Prayer. But Jesus says, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So first we're to call on the Father, our Father who art in heaven. We're to honor him, hallowed be your name. We're to surrender our wills, again giving up ourselves, adjusting our heart attitude. We ask for our needs, give us our daily bread ask for justice, forgive as I've forgiven, ask us for protection, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then Jesus addresses the forgiveness piece, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. He has segued from the passage on how we behave with others and incorporated that into the Lord's Prayer. That selfless heart attitude, turning the other cheek, not taking what we rightfully could, going the extra mile, carries into how we're treated by God through our prayer. To forgive with our heavenly reward being to be forgiven. Another aspect of our worship to God that we're called to be genuine in is fasting. 
And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So we don't want to look gloomy when we're fasting. I'm not supposed to draw attention. Oh, no, I can't because I'm fasting. I'm fasting today. We just fast. We go about our life like nothing is different. It's a part of worship. It's what we're doing. Now, about taking away from community fasting, like we mentioned, a, a day fast for love life. This is a time when we all fast together to encourage and support each other. But we're not to make a spectacle of it. It's just something we do. So maybe we're at work and somebody brought some brownies to share and we go, oh no, I can't have any today. Maybe you tell them what you're doing as a ministry, but it's not a big deal. It's what God's called you to and so you're doing it. And then we look at our treasures in heaven. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where, things, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. We'll pause there for a moment. So remember, we're looking at this in context of our earthly recognition versus our heavenly reward. See, all the passages leading up to this have talked about how we receive earthly acknowledgement over having a genuine motive and heart attitude. This is presented in the context here of worship and our giving. <coughs> Excuse me. Earthly treasures or rewards will be destroyed, regardless of what they are. The recognition for our religious piety will be forgotten. Any monuments and trophies that we receive will be destroyed or packed away or thrown in the trash. Thieves can come in and take the things that we possess. What are our treasures? I think verse 21 sometimes is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. A lot of people say that where your treasure is is often used to imply just our tithes and our offerings. And tithing is biblical, but if we look at the context here, and took it meaning specifically our finances, then we should be giving everything to God because that's the only way to protect it from being taken. But material things, our money, our possessions, are useless in heaven. So what are the treasures in heaven? See, I think this passage is actually challenging us to reevaluate what we treasure and where the things we treasure are. See, I think the treasures in heaven that we're to be storing up are the things that glorify God. As Emily mentioned, it's not about what we own, what we have. We sang that earlier. 
What is God's greatest possession? It's the souls of the people that love him and follow him. What can we be storing in heaven that has any value to God? Souls of people. Everything else is worthless and fit for the fire. We have to understand that on our own, we can't lead people to the truth. We can share the gospel. We can use all the right techniques. But unless we treasure people over things and possessions, we cannot be effective in drawing people. You see, I think this is the light that Jesus is referencing in 5.16 that shines before others so that they may see our good works and turn and give glory to the Father. After all, isn't that the example Jesus gave? He loved us so much that he died for us. And we see that in 22 through 23, and I'm going to read it again, but think about this from the perspective of seeing the hurt in people, seeing the need for a Savior, as opposed to looking at circumstances. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So if we put our possessions over the needs of people, if we put our actions and our rewards over the needs of people and the hurt in people, then we are attempting to serve two masters. And we cannot serve two masters. We will love one and hate the other. So where is your focus? We cannot be effective in our ministry if we're distracted by things of this world. And that's what Jesus is telling us here. But we have earthly needs. We've got bills to pay. We've got food to put on the table. We have things, and Jesus understands that. So he leads into that by telling us, in verses 25 through 34, don't worry about it. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the fire... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and all his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So we need to have our proper perspective on life, Jesus is telling us. Life is about more than food. Our clothes are about more 
Our bodies about more than the clothes that we wear. God's providing for all of nature already. And remember, the birds of the field and the grass are created things. It's the souls that God treasures. Worrying about things doesn't add any time to our life. Science tells us it actually takes time away. If we evaluate it truthfully, Solomon, who had riches, wasn't clothed nearly as well as the flowers of the field, according to Jesus. So what Jesus is telling us, to sum it up in a different way, God makes beautiful things that he knows are going to be destroyed in the end. They're important to him, but they're not his treasures. And if he's going to take so much care of those things that are not his treasures, how much more care is he going to take of the things that he does treasure? And if you don't believe that, the words Jesus uses here is, O you of little faith. See, our perspective on our circumstances is directly related to our faith. If God is sufficient, we should be content with him. He has the provision. He has the catalog, the cattle on a thousand hills. He will meet our needs. God is telling us that he wants to be our priority. Our heart must seek him first. This is the ultimate expression of having our attitude in the right place. And when we do that, God states that when our attitude is right, the rest is going to fall into place. Now, does that mean that God's going to bless you with everything you want? No. He's going to provide you with what you need. Looking at what you have versus what you want is always going to lead to despair and dissatisfaction. But looking at what God has given you and blessed you with will always lead to contentment. This is not a promise for prosperity. Jesus has made it clear that we're going to face trouble and persecution. God is simply promising that if we seek him first, he's going to meet the needs we have. So some bullet points from what we've already seen. Our perspective is not God's perspective. God knows our need before we pray. We are treasured by God over all creation. And if God feeds the lesser things that are to be destroyed, why is he going to ignore us, his true treasures? He will meet, remember the Lord's Prayer, our daily bread. We should not be worrying about tomorrow because we have enough to do today to keep us occupied. And as we move into our application and how it applies to others, we're not called to look at others in a judgmental attitude as we're doing our ministry. So we see this in 7, 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye 
and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. We're not supposed to be comparing ourselves to others. We are called to look upward at God and inward at ourselves. We are not here to judge others. See, God's call for us is for us. It is our relationship with him that he wants us to focus on. Just like we're not to worry about our material needs, we're not responsible for making sure another person is walking correctly in the faith. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not going to be discerning, we're not going to correct and rebuke, and we're not going to come alongside and walk with someone because we are called to build each other up as believers in the body of Christ. But Jesus is addressing our attitude and judgment. How we judge them, we will be judged. Jesus has just told us two keys to our walk, and that's storing treasures in heaven and to seek his kingdom first. This applies here as well. See, our attitude towards sin and people changes when we do the two things that God has been teaching us. When we see others who are in sin as broken and hurting in need of Christ, in need of his grace, in need of his Savior, our perspective changes and our approach to them changes. We get heartbroken over that lost and hurting soul. We want to minister to them. And Jesus is reminding us here that while we may see sin in someone else's life, we've got plenty of it in our own. Our brother's got a speck, but we're walking around with a plank. None of us have been fully sanctified. But the good news is that Jesus has come and provided atonement. Atonement for our sin and atonement for the sin of the person that we're wanting to judge. But when we acknowledge that we're no better than that person. In fact, in a lot of ways we're worse because we're the ones that should know better. That's why Jesus calls ours a plank and our brothers a splinter. We can then approach them with love and mercy and present the truth of the gospel. Instead of saying, you need to fix this, we can say, come along, let's walk together. Let's grow together. Let's be drawn to Christ and God. But Jesus concludes this with a warning that despite us approaching in love, not all are going to be responsive to the truth of the gospel. He tells us that pursuit of a hardened heart is unproductive and useless. The pearl of the gospel will get trampled underfoot of the unrepentant will be, and it can be used to destroy our faith through the discouragement that comes. So how do we know if we can't judge, how do we become discerning? So Jesus gives us guidance in our wisdom for our ministry. And he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You know, we hear this passage a lot of times and people think of it as tangible things. You know, we're asking for our needs. 
But God's already told us to trust for his provision twice in this sermon, once during the teaching on prayer, and once when he's talking about worrying about our need. You see, this is an asking in faith. It comes on the heels of, of presenting the gospel and addressing sin and not being judgment. If we take this in context, we should find that we're talking about having the words and the skills to adequately, adequately present the gospel to those around us. You see, we're called to ask for opportunities to present the gospel in truth. We are called to seek those who would willingly hear the truth and listen to the Spirit's prompting and then take the opportunity, knock on the door of sharing the gospel and wait for it to be opened. So God returns to a promise of provision to meet our need, but this time the application is a spiritual one and not a physical one. Ask and you'll receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. And he goes on to say, if we who are evil, I think he's referencing back to the plank in our own eye here, can give good gifts, how much better are the gifts that God gives? After all, God is perfect. He doesn't have a plank or a splinter. And then we're told to do unto others. Um, Now, backing up a little bit, if we ask for souls to share the gospel with, Jesus is not going to give us a bunch of hardened hearts. Now, do you think it's a mistake here that Jesus says if someone asks him, asks us for bread, as in the bread of life, that we would give them a stone? Often we refer to hardened hearts as hearts of stone. Or the other analogy he's drawn out here, if he asks for a fish, think fishers of men, would he give him a snake or a serpent? maybe referencing back to the serpent in the garden that led to the fall of man. See, if we as individuals are evil because of the plank in our own eye, and we can give good gifts, God, who is perfect, will give us the best gifts. And then Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The first time we hear this from Jesus, and we will hear it again. Jesus begins to sum up his message here, and he begins bringing some some personal application. Again, the the genuine Christian life is harder than it looks. It is easy to fake it, far easier to fake it than it is to be true. And I think this is the analogy we're being given here. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. That's our internal challenge. Jesus is beginning to make this personal for us. See, he's continually contrasted our actions with our attitudes throughout this Sermon on the Mount. He's mentioned many things that can be done and even religious ceremonies that can look genuine, but they're fake because they're not in the heart. 
with each concept. Jesus has taught us how our heart attitude is the key to the eternal outcome of any particular action we make. This passage reminds us that it's easy to go through the motions. But it is very difficult to have that pure, broken, and contrite heart, which is what God is requiring of us. It is the narrow gate that we are to pass through. And Jesus begins to warn of the false teachers. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. You see, the false teachers are those who do not have a heart surrendered to God. They do not seek God's glory in his kingdom first. They may appear to be followers based on their actions, but they will devour you. Referencing back to the, the pearls before swine. And we will know them by their fruit. Those who are seeking earthly recognition are going to produce disciples that also seek earthly recognition. But because they're not quite as skilled at faking it, you'll probably be able to identify it through them easier, much easier than you will be able to from the false teacher. So evaluate the fruit. The trees that produce bad fruit are going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. This goes back to verse 630 and God clothing the grass that's here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. He's provided blessing for them. He's provided opportunity. They've shared the gospel but their fruit is useless and they're cut off and thrown into the fire. So Jesus reiterates using fruit to discern where we receive our teaching. The fruit is the result produced by the actions of teachers, not the actions themselves. Is the fruit faithful and good? So Jesus is making his point that looks can be so deceiving that we even fool ourselves. And now we get to the passage that we focus on. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Only those who do the will of the Father they verbally claimed to follow. They cried out, Lord, Lord. What have we learned that the will of the Father is through this message? It is attitude over action. It is seeking first the kingdom of God. It is brokenness over sin, both our own and the sins of others. It is a, it is a desire to ask for the skills to seek the lost and to knock on the door for the opportunity to present the gospel. You see, doing the will of God is not about our actual activities. Look at what they said. Did we not prophesy? Did we drive out demons? Did we not perform miracles? But Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. 
You see, they thought they were saved. They knew all about God and Jesus, but they did not know Jesus. Jesus knew all about them, but Jesus does not know them. There is no personal relationship. You see, they had actions, but they had no heart attitude. They have missed the mark. Like the tree that does not produce fruit, or the grass, they are thrown in the fire. So like any good sermon, Jesus is going to conclude with an application. And he says, Everyone who then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So we are being told here that we must seek the kingdom of God first. We are hearing that we must have hearts that surrender. We're hearing that our actions are measured by our heart attitude that generates them and the fruit that we produce. See, this is the light that will shine on our good deeds. What are we putting into practice? We are going to practice being selfless. We are practicing being broken for the lost. We are asking for, finding, and taking opportunities to share the gospel in love. We are practicing having hearts that are open and obedient so that we are bearing fruit that carries the same attributes that we are called to. This is what brings glory to God. Anything else is superficial and not a heavenly treasure. It will not stand. It is fit for the fire. Jesus again emphasizes the importance of taking his teaching to heart. The wise person takes this teaching, puts it into practice. The rains will fall, the waters will rise, winds will blow against the house. There will be tribulation, but the home that is built on the rock will stand. When we seek God's kingdom first, nothing will stop us. But when we do not, we are the foolish person we have built upon sand. The rains will fall, the waters rise, the winds blow against the house. The home will collapse. The fruit is bad. It's suitable for the fire and nothing more. The salt has lost its flavor. The city on the hill is hidden. The light has been put under the bowl and the wide path was taken. So can we truly know? The answer is yes. But we can only know about ourselves because it's an inward attitude. So we have to ask ourselves, are you simply going through the motions or is your heart in it? If you are serving God, are you serving out of love or simply because there's a need or maybe because you want attention? If you're not serving, why? Is it because you're not broken for the loss? Maybe it's because you're broken yourself and you need someone to come alongside you. Maybe you don't feel equipped. But the good news is we are promised by God that he will provide all we need to serve him faithfully in his time. You see, our confidence in our salvation does not come from how much we look around and see what God is doing in our lives, nor does it come from basking in all the blessings we've been given. Our confidence comes 
through looking in our heart and looking at all that is being accomplished by God there. We are promised earthly trouble. There's no way to avoid it. In fact, we should be expecting it. If we're not experiencing some form of earthly opposition, we may want to take a close accounting of our lives. Who are we to expect a life full of butterflies and rainbows? You see, our confidence in our salvation, the assurance that we're genuinely saved, does not come from our ease of life. It does not come from looking at the works we do. Our assurance comes from knowing that Jesus has forgiven our sins, that he has redeemed us, and we will be with him in eternity. So we should be encouraged as we see people either coming to Christ or growing in a Christ around us through the interactions we have with them. Our assurance comes from the confidence that can only come when we wholeheartedly seek the kingdom of God first with a broken and contrite heart. Then, and only then, will we experience the peace that passes understanding. After all, isn't that what our faith truly is? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence here this morning. We thank you for the reminder that you are to be our sole focus, that you are the one we are to seek first. That when our relationship with you is right, our ministry will draw people to you and not to ourselves. We thank you for the presence of your spirit here this morning. We pray that we would be encouraged and challenged to be a light. That the light that we shine would draw, work, draw attention to the things that we've done and bring glory to you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Now, as we close in prayer, as we, as we sing this closing song, let this be your prayer. If you feel the need to come to the altar, it is open. Take some time and evaluate your heart. Are you seeking first the kingdom of God?